I'm Sarah Haslam and I'm here with Ema Nolan, who is Senior Lecturer at the National University of Ireland, Maynooth, and Declan Kybert, who holds the Chair of Anglo-Irish Literature and Drama at University College, Dublin. Can you both tell us something about where we are sitting and talking now? We're in Mulligan's Pub, which is mentioned in the short story Counterparts, but unlike other pubs in Dublin, which got mentioned in Joyce, was never corrupted by this. It never became a kind of Joycean Disney world. It remained steadfastly what it was, an old Dublin city pub, pretty dim even in the middle of the day as we're talking now, probably quite like what it was 100 years ago. And, of course, the, the pub itself is a very important space in Dubliners, as I think it was in Irish society at this time, uh, pubs have a lot of different meanings in Joyce. They certainly are homes away from home for a lot of the characters, specifically the male characters who might be fleeing from their homes and from their domestic responsibilities. The pub is also interesting in that there's a word used about the barmen in Joyce's Dublin, which is that they're curates. So you have the men seeking from the curates in the pub a kind of comfort that many of the women seek from the curates who are priests in the local church. They're ministering to the men in some way in the pubs. Yes, mm. yeah. And, and it does seem as if, to Joyce, I suppose both are just alternative forms of escape in drink or in the opium of religion, but one is in some ways equivalent to the other. The new statue to Joyce was unveiled in 1990, and I think really in some ways he has to be known as the Dublin author. Um, in what ways was his focus on the city new in Irish writing at the turn of the century? I think it was a revolutionary step for Joyce to uh, set all his fiction in his hometown in Dublin. In Joyce's day, there was a big movement for literary revival and for the revival of the Irish language, and Joyce, in some regards at least, did resist aspects of that movement. And uh, at a time when other Irish writers were, were telling the Irish people that they essentially belonged in the west of Ireland or in the rural places of Ireland, Joyce very much asserted that there was a distinctive Dublin identity, an Irish urban identity, and this was as creative and as important as the way that Irish people had lived in the past. Can you characterise that Irish urban identity? Joyce wrote about it in different ways himself over the course of his writing. It's in some ways a fractured identity. There is a sense that people in the city have not lived there for too many generations in some cases. They've come from other places. They have other memories of Irish experience that they, in some cases, would rather forget. When Joyce wrote in Dublin around the turn of the century, it was a city of unemployment, of underdevelopment. It was a small town. It was a provincial place. Dublin had had a grand history as the second city of the empire, but since the early 19th century had been in decline after the passage of the Act of Union, Ireland had yeah. lost its parliament, so had lost a degree of its political identity. So in the early 20th century, there was a, a legacy of poverty and of uh, displacement and loss, including the loss of the Irish language. At the same time, there were things happening in the city. There were political movements moving in a different direction. There was the movement for cultural revival. Joyce saw all of these things. 
He was sceptical enough at times about their possibilities, but I think he was very well aware that there were undercurrents and there were energies in this urban culture. He tapped into them in a very different way to other Irish writers, certainly by comparison with W.B. Yeats. I think that he loved Dublin, and what Emer says is true. There is an attempt to balance the negatives with the positives. One thing I think that must have struck him was what an odd city it was. It didn't have a central intelligence behind it. It just was a set of villages that really got joined up with each other. And that's a reason why often there's a feeling of intimacy in any situation, that you are in the heart of somebody's village, even though this is in another way a great conurbation. Did any of those villages maintain their individuality? Yeah, places like Rathmines, uh, Kilester, Marino, Fairview... People would have been identified by different accents in Joyce's time. Uh, Even in the city? Yeah, Mm. I would say so. And until comparatively recent times, until the effect of the electronic media kind of airbrushed those differences away. But yeah, there's a sense of the colour of locality all through Joyce. Mm. And that going from the north side to Ring's End Mm. is actually traversing a, a number of worlds. One thing that strikes me, I agree with Emer. I mean, he wanted to celebrate the city and to oppose those who felt that cities were in some sense un-Irish. But there's also a sense in which the city, as he describes it, is a very ruralised place. You know, it's filled with people who believe in the old folk taboos and practice old-fashioned folklore, really, along with a traditional form of rule-bound Catholicism. It's in some ways as if the communities that form reproduce something like a rural community. Even in, you know, tenement buildings, that was true. Even, like, in the tenements described by Sean O'Casey, if you had six or seven families in the one big building, which had once been a house of a great Anglo-Irish family, what you have, in effect, is something like a displaced rural village in the guise of urban living. And I think in the same way that Joyce is using the anecdote or the short story as a form through which to mediate things... It's a set of linked stories that are halfway between a collection of stories and a novel, in the same way that Dublin is halfway between being a collection of villages and something like a European city. And he's trying to capture that in-betweenness as much as anything in the way he renders it. Joyce had a very rich urban context in Dublin. You've said something about that already. Uh, can you describe any more different aspects of that, of that richness? Um, I'm thinking particularly perhaps of the number of statues that one comes across when one's walking around the city centre. I think that Joyce was fascinated by statues and it has to do with his sense of the comic, going right back to Aristotle, because Aristotle said the comic character is static, goes on revealing himself doesn't change, you know, makes the same mistakes over and over. And the frozen, immobile state of a statue is, I suppose, in Joyce's mind, a kind of epitome of one of the problems of paralysis in Dublin. But he's also aware that so many of the statues are part of that 19th-century pomposity that went with empire, colonial occupation, all the rest of it. I think he's basically laughing at them. And it's interesting that the statue of Joyce in the middle of Dublin now, unlike most of the other ones, is not up on a plinth. It's among the people as one of them. He probably would have been slightly irritated at the very idea of being turned into a statue. But if there has to be a statue, let it be at ground level. (laughs) And you talk about the permanence of the statues, but there are ways, aren't there, in which new periods are symbolised by statues being torn down. Yeah, well, Admiral Nelson was blown up as part of the... 50th anniversary commemoration of the Easter Rising in 1966 and a statue of Queen Victoria was removed in the 1940s from Kildare Street 
in front of our Doyle, our national parliament, and stored for some inexplicable reason in the basement of University College Cork. The history of Ireland is a history of statues and the allergy of ordinary people to them. <laughs> and I think that Joyce is definitely mocking that element of the 19th century. Tell me something about the Liffey as well and what that symbolises in Dublin life. Then, as now, the Liffey divided Dublin into a northern city and a southern city. This was a social division. Joyce reflects that in his stories. Joyce's own family started on the south side of the Liffey and by the time that Joyce was a young adult, they were living in much less salubrious accommodation on the north side. The old uh, medieval heart of the city had been in the south. Later, the ascendancy capital uh, was centred on College Green and the Houses of Parliament there. The great Georgian squares of Fitzwilliam Square and Merrion Square belonged to the south part of the city. But those were not really the aspects of the city that Joyce was most interested in. While not really showing us tenement life in the style of O'Casey, he didn't really show us the most deprived classes in Dublin. He concentrated on the lower middle class, which was his own people how these people kind of negotiated the urban geography of Dublin through their own mental maps that weren't really related to the official geography of Dublin. We see the city through the eyes of its native inhabitants. It's not necessarily described to us in a way that's helpful for readers outside the city. There are very few panoramic views of the city in Joyce. There are very few overall descriptions of the river or of the quays or of the situation of the city. Which goes back to what Declan was saying about form. I think that's a really useful point, that we don't get that kind of grand novelist's vision of the interrelationship. We get a much more fragmented um, series of, of, of sections or individual, really, individual stories, individual characters, mind maps, as yes. you say. He assumes intimacy on the part of the reader with all this, which is, of course, unnerving for most readers, even for Dublin people now, there's a sense in which the casual assumption of intimacy can be almost invasive. Even in, the, in Dubliners itself, it's, it's quite a while before the city as such is mentioned. Absolutely. It's not, it does, it's not a place that construes itself as such. That's why it's so interesting that he starts with a, with a child narrator as well, because mm. a child narrator can't possibly have a panoramic vision, doesn't even know, that really know what material he's in charge of as he's speaking. Mm. So yes, we're brought into the text in a very uncomfortable, very incomplete fashion. It's almost um, like a form of cubism before cubism because you're getting different ways in which a younger person, a slightly older person than an adult of different kinds, the different ways in which they would see the city. And it seems to be at least as important as the city that's seen is the way of seeing it. That's a very modernist approach. There is a sense in which he's saying that Dublin is growing up through these stories. I mean, do you, but do you think he's saying that about the city, or do you think it, it's really about the, the city as a character, or is it really about the, just the, the, the pattern he's chosen for his narrators as they grow? Joyce's vision of Dublin becomes somewhat more expansive as the stories proceed and as he moves away from the child narrators to the, the more mature figures in the later stories. But I also think there's always a counterpoint between an expanding consciousness and a very restricted and narrow consciousness as well. Even in the later stories, we get glimpses of children and of childhood 
suffering and deprivation. We get glimpses of the lives of women, such as Eveline and Maria in clay, which again show very little hope of individuals being able to escape from their environment or being able to escape from the constrictions imposed on them. So I think that sense of constriction is there, but maybe just within it, Joyce is probing at the possibilities and uh, registering the hidden potential in the culture and in the characters' consciousnesses as well. There's a tremendous yearning for freedom in so many of the characters, beginning with the child subjects of the early stories. And the thing that often strikes me reading those early stories is, yeah, of course the environment defeats everyone in the end, but they're so free to range as children, even young children, wherever they want to go in ways that a child wouldn't be allowed to now. And it gives them a much more immediate sense of the geography and the layout of the city. You know the way people nowadays are always accusing young people of having no sense of chronology, of depth, of the past, and maybe that's because they've been deprived of it by a different education system. But in the same way, a lot of young people don't have a sense of geography because, you know, they're driven from their music lesson back home again and they don't actually negotiate the space in between the way younger people in Dublin would have done 50 or 100 years ago and I think that's partly what Joyce is capturing the tremendous freedom in fact the young people had who went from say North Richmond Street out to Ring's End I do think there's a kind of poignancy as well to the idea of kids being able to make an entire city their landscape What was modern about Dublin for Joyce, do you think? Dublin was a port city. You know, the boys in an encounter are going past ships with continental sailors in the boats and wondering if they might have green eyes. They're looking for exoticism. They're looking for the cosmopolitan. It probably had some of the qualities of a place like Liverpool had for John Lennon, who, who, you know, got these records, you know, as they came in from America after World War II. You know, I think any poor city will always be a dispatch point for Mm. forms of modernity. And Dublin is a place where you can meet the modern within the context of something older as well, within the framework of community and familiar faces. You can walk down a street and meet people you know. People lived by their wits and they traded stories and anecdotes and jokes. On the other hand, you could see a commercial culture beginning even in Dubliners Joyce talks about advertising hoardings and poster bills and performances of musicals and music hall and all of this variety of different cultures that were intermingling on the streets so I think really what you get in Dubliners is an intermingling of something traditional with something modern And the street life of Dublin is, of course, very, very different to what we imagine in the metropolis in the same era, in London or Paris. But because Joyce is is looking at something very familiar, having himself experienced a different kind of city outside Ireland, I think he superimposes the two on each other in a very productive way. That's what I would like to pick up on now, the way in which he, he brings out detail. We do end up with a sense of of history of the past in Dublin, but also the absolute specificity of, of individuals' lives and experiences, the tastes, the smells, the textures of Dublin, the colours or lack of colour. What are some of the best sections in a text for you which bring out that detail, that local colour perhaps, either in character or in place? In the story, The Two Gallants, there are a number of very telling 
moments, a number of very significant details are disclosed to us. I think the meal must be one of the most uh, repulsive repasts um, that (laughs) I've ever read about. And it's enjoyed very heartily by the character, which I think is a way of disclosing to us something about his coarse tastes and something about his... Poverty. Uh, poverty, yes. One of the reasons why he's confined to walking around Dublin is because he has nowhere else to go. He has nothing else to do and no money to spend on occupying himself. And he looks up and down, doesn't he, to make sure he's not seen going into that restaurant. Yes, yes but he likes it very much. <laughs> he makes a note of it. He plans to come back. Yeah. Yeah. The men in that story are as degraded and as miserable in their own way as the unfortunate young woman. And, and the interesting thing is that in the last story, The Dead, there's a young serving girl, Lily, who has a coin thrust into her hand by Gabriel in a patronising and condescending gesture, because it's Christmas, and he's rewarding the servant, quote-unquote. And she actually says, Lily, the young men that is out today is all palaver and all that they can get out of you. And it's a sort of back-reference to that moment yes. that you've mentioned yeah. in Two Glance, yes. which is what makes me feel, reading the book, that it's more than a collection of stories. It's almost, but not quite, a novel. And it's bolted together by those images that recur from story to story. It's almost like a detective, that any passing detail might be the supreme clue. You don't know at the time, because like the passing of a coin is pretty ordinary banal, but becomes a huge image in the book, not just in the story. Uh, and in the same way, any aspect of the passing scene, which he itemises in such concrete detail might suddenly erupt into symbolism rather than just being the passing scene. And it puts the reader on a kind of perpetual mental alert. You know, you're trying to sift all this and decode it, which is partly what modern urban living was about, like the boys in an encounter wondering if the sailors would have green eyes. Where is the, where is the fun? You've talked about the freedom that those boyish narrators have. Is there any, is there any fun later, or does it, does it get lost as the characters grow up, do you think? There's certainly conviviality, there's community, there's fellowship. It's probably more connected to the male world of the pub rather than to the family The overall situation in most of the stories is pretty bleak, and Joyce is diagnosing paralysis, of course, yet there's tremendous energy in some of the conversations, you know, the actual use of language by these Dubliners, some of whom probably are still recent masters of the English language, and their use of English has the excitement of surprise. Can you think of an example that you could read to us? There there they were at it, all the cardinals and bishops and archbishops from all the ends of the earth. And these two fighting dog and devil until at last the Pope himself stood up and declared infallibility a dogma of the church, ex cathedra. On the very moment, John McHale, who had been arguing and arguing against it, stood up and shouted out with the voice of a lion, Credo, I believe, said Mr Fogarty. Credo, said Mr Cunningham. That showed the faith he had. He submitted the moment the Pope spoke. And what about Dowling, asked Mr. McCoy. The German cardinal wouldn't submit. He left the church. Mr. Cunningham's words had built up the vast image of the church in the minds of all his hearers. As well as a city of bricks and mortar and buildings and streets, Dubliners is a, a city of words. And one of the very important things that Joyce did for this city was to record the, the speech and the styles of speech 
of the citizens of Dublin and to use Dublin speech as a literary language for the first time. And it wasn't necessarily a lyrical dialect of Hiberno-English. It wasn't like the Hiberno-English that Yeats or Lady Gregory or other revivalists used in their studies of Ireland, their books about Ireland, but it has its own flavour and its own force and its own energy and its own uh, creative possibilities. I, I agree with Emer. I think Joyce is quite critical of Yeats and Singh and the kind of Baroque exotic language you get in their plays and say in some of Yeats's poems. He is saying that in some ways Ireland has become too colourful in the eyes of the outside world and what you need is to capture more its everydayness. The right of a people to dignity and to be colourless at certain moments. Uh, and yet, as Emer says, there's a tremendous uh, energy. And it isn't just to do with the way Dubliners talk. It's the way Dubliners talk to people who've come in from the countryside. Like Greta Conroy, when she's describing an old lover, says, I was great with him once, from the Gaelic, the word great would be a kind of West of Ireland word. And there's a lot of that that Joyce picks up on. Of course, he was a great musician. He had a wonderful ear. But there's a sense in which, again, the little detail tells so much. And yet is drawn into a tribute to the West of Ireland in the final paragraphs of the story and of the book, the place of which he'd spoken so critically, which captures Joyce's ambivalence, I think, that, you know, on the one hand, this is to be a counter-revival book, which will not be Baroque, will not draw on folklore in the ways that Singh and others did. And yet it's filled with folklore, and in the end, Climax is in one of the most moving tributes possible to the culture of the West of Ireland, perhaps out Yeatsing Yeats. Some of the people in Dubliners dream of exile, they dream of emigration, they dream of getting away. Joyce himself left Dublin but imaginatively returned to it again and again. And it seems that in the end he wanted to say that it's only through remaking the place that you're from that you achieve a real freedom. The Open University. For more information, go to www.open.edu forward slash iTunes U.